couple months ago, some friends gave Brianna and I some tickets to the LA Dodgers. And I had only been to a game once in my life. It was like 10 years ago. And Bree's never been to a baseball game in her life. Never been in a stadium, never done the thing. So we were pumped out of our mind to go. We uh, took the day off, went together, just her and I, got babysitters, just her and I on a date, like went to uh, the Dodgers Stadium, watched the game, and it was as much fun as we imagined it would be. Uh, there were a couple people at the game, uh, friends of ours, Adam Smith, he actually spoke here once on a Sunday, he's one of the pastors at Reality LA, and his wife, Katie, and his three boys were also at the, the Dodger game, and he found out I was there, and he texted us a picture of them sitting in the rafters, they had like box seats, and they're all decked out in blue, and the cap, and they've got like the, the face on, I don't know what the face is, but they had this like face and they're like, dude, we're so sorry you came to this game. I wish they could have played better. The Dodgers lost. They, 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 they lost and I don't, they lost the game, and I just wish you could have come for like a better, a better showing. And Bree and I were like, we don't care. Like, we didn't even, I, I didn't even, I don't watch baseball. Bree has never been to a baseball game in her life. I didn't even know where the other team was from, okay? I was cheering like anytime somebody made a hit. I was like, yeah. All we cared about was going to a game. We just wanted to soak up this great American pastime. That's all. We didn't even care about who was playing or what was happening. I'll tell you the truth. The thing that we enjoyed the most was actually not the game. It was the, the foul balls that the Dodgers kept sending to the area where we were sitting. Bree had no idea this happened. She was like, these heavy things just come rolling in at our heads, like without warning them. Well, yeah, it's awesome, right? Like, you can't blink, you can't fall asleep, you gotta pay attention. It would happen so much, like every four minutes, these baseballs coming at people's heads and someone would catch it and everybody would scream and somebody would not catch it and they'd get knocked on their rear end and just everybody was just screaming. I don't know if anybody was watching the game. Some guy over in the corner started doing this and nobody was paying attention and little by little he started a wave. He started a wave that circled the entire stadium. He must have been so excited. The Dodgers were losing, but they were doing the wave. That's all we wanted. We wanted to eat the hot dogs. We wanted to sit in the seats. We wanted the nachos with the orange stuff that looks almost like cheese, but is not. I wanted it all. I wanted the jalapenos. I wanted my mouth to burn, and we got it. We didn't care if the Dodgers won or not. We didn't even know how, who was playing or how the game works, but we were screaming and cheering for something the whole time until our voices were lost. It's okay that the Dodgers were losing. We came to experience the game. I almost feel the same type of sentiment happening in the Gospel of Luke in this opening passage. When John's messengers had left, you can almost feel the air being sucked out of the room. Like, oh, I guess this is it. We're losing. John's in prison, the last great Old Testament guy. And he's even casting doubt on Jesus. Maybe this isn't what we were hoping this would be. The team is losing, and Jesus comes in on the scene. And forget the scoreboard right now. What did you come here to see? And look at the descriptions that Jesus is using. Did you, did you, what did you come into the wilderness to see? Did you come to see a reed shaken by the wind? Some scholars point out that the coin at that time, the, the most common currency, like our quarter, would have had Herod's face on the front and a reed shaking in the wind on the back. This could have, been, this could have had some political connotations. 
it would have reminded them of that political power in Rome and in Jerusalem. Oh, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Think of satin. Think of silk. Articles of clothing that people in power would have worn at that time. He goes on, behold, those, those types of people aren't here in the wilderness. If you came to look for satin shirts and you came to look for uh, Herod's power, you wouldn't come here. You would go, what does he say? You would go to uh, places of luxury in the king's courts, but you're not here. You're in the wilderness. Why did you come to the wilderness? Was it to see a prophet? Yes. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's tapping into their deepest longing amid all of the disappointments. John is losing. Jesus is weird. I don't know about him yet. Rome's still in power. Jesus is like, forget the scoreboard for a minute. What did you come here for? Was it not to hear the voice of the living God amidst the noise? Yes, you came to see a prophet. We all want that in some way or another. I imagine that most of the people in this room come here. You might come here for a variety of externals, which are fine. You might be here to see a a fellow believer or a friend or to connect with your home group uh, or just maybe you were bored this morning and you came to church. But for most of you, I imagine that deep down underneath all those externals is a desire to encounter the living God. A deep longing, a flicker inside your very soul that knows that God is real but longs to reach out and touch him. Isn't that why we do this church thing anyway? If it wasn't about the presence of God, if it was only about the externals, we should pack this thing up and stop doing it because you can find better music than what you heard this morning out there. You can find more entertaining communication than what you're getting here. You can find way better danishes and croissants. Our donuts are a half a day old for economic reasons. But if you're here for the presence of God, the very reason that the church exists, people gathered around his presence, then that changes everything. Then we should stop everything to do this. Isn't there some longing inside of us? Isn't there something in all of the reasons that we brought ourselves to a church gathering on Sunday to see, is God real? And and can he reach out and touch me in my life right now? Can I hear him? Can he speak to me? Can I know his will? A lot of us want that. The problem, perhaps for a lot of us, is the same as the problem with the Pharisees. We can only see God the way that we want to see him. We have a preconceived notion of what he's like and what he does and how he speaks and how he moves. And that will mess you up in your search. Look at this verse in verse 27 through 30. I'm going to start back at 27. Jesus goes on. I want want you to see this problem right here in the text. He says, I tell you, John's more than a prophet. He's bad. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare. (laughs) I love how he says that. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. 
I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is awesome. What Jesus is saying is in the Old Testament era, when we did certain things a certain way, where we had to go through a list of righteous requirements in order to see God and even only see and experience God through a priest and all these regulations and religious observances and only for a minute second through, a, a, through an umpire, the high priest, We didn't even get to experience or hear God. We had to do it uh, vicariously through another person. In that era, John the Baptist is the greatest of all. Ain't nobody in the Old Testament era better than him. He's the last of the great prophets, the great Old Testament prophets, and he has a message that none of them had as vividly as he did. He was preparing the way for a new era. Not just a new era, but a new person who would bring that new era. And then he says, John is the best in that era. But in this new era that I'm bringing, the least of these will be even greater than John. You see what Jesus does? He flips our value system. He even flips the Old Testament value system. He says, when I get done with things, the person at the farthest end of the table will be esteemed before God. Notice the response. When all the people heard this, tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. What's happening? We can see the way that people have been trained to see how God is supposed to work. Tax collectors were some of the most hated people in society. They were generally Jewish people who Rome recruited to tax Jewish people. So for Rome, they were a throwaway, but for Jewish people, they were a traitor. And it wasn't just that they were working for the other side, it's that they also tended to skim a little bit off the top a lot of bit off the top and made themselves wealthy. So they're not just traitors who betrayed their countrymen, but they're also uh, getting rich off the sufferings of their own people. Hated, most hated people in society at that time. And notice that they're the ones that, that, that feel relieved at the words of Jesus. Like, oh, this is awesome. You ever find it strange that Jesus is always being invited to dinner and to parties from people that don't ever get invited to parties? You may say, yeah, well, he did that to call them to repentance. Yeah, he did. But notice that after calling them to repentance, they still kept inviting him to their parties and to their meals. should tell you a few things about Jesus. Tax collectors loved him. Prostitutes loved him. Why? He ministered to them in such a way as to show them the very grief and misery that was their reality, but also to elevate them by the grace and power of God. They never got that from anybody. They got it from Jesus. Notice the Pharisees, though. The Pharisees rejected the purpose of God because they did not get baptized by John the Baptist. This is another way of saying, the way that you guys are laying out who God is to me does not work with my lens. I reject it. My kids have have goggles for swimming. They love swimming. Um, and they each have goggles that have like a, like a colored filter on the lens. One of them is blue, 
and Jude's is green. I brought them with me because they're awesome. And he doesn't just wear these in the pool, he wears them in the house. So he'll do something like this, and he'll walk around, usually buck naked, you know, and he'll just be like, Aah! and he'll look at me, and he'll be like, Dad, you're green, except he can't say green. He says, Bween. He says, Dad, you're Bween. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm not green, buddy, I'm, I'm brown, and I have a white shirt. He's all, no, you're Bween, <laughs> and your shirt is Bween, and your shoes are Bween, and your face is Bween. <laughs> and then he'll go over and he'll do it to mom. And he'll actually, he's actually not eating food because it was the wrong color because he was wearing his goggles. And we're like, buddy, you got to take off those goggles. They're coloring the way that you see reality. You know what was the problem with the Pharisees? I'll tell you. Bween goggles. <laughs> they had developed their whole life around this extreme religious observance. There was some good in it that started there. This is Old Testament. Old Testament's great. But they had turned it into a method of saving themselves. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to do this. You have to do that. God is holy. And to get inside with God, you have to be a great person. And great can be defined as these things. And if you do these things, then you can be on the inside. And the inside is called the Pharisees. So you have to be on our inside. And once you're on our inside in our circle doing these things and saying these things and not doing any of those things, then God will accept you. In other words, God works like this, and that's all I can see. Boing goggles. So that when Jesus comes in on the scene, they absolutely reject his purpose. This is the best thing that has ever happened to those Pharisees in their lives. Jesus just stepped into their world. And they completely reject it because it does not make sense to them. This is not what I expected. This is not what I want. This is a very difficult thing when we get to that place where we uh, create, we see God in a certain way, and he can only work in that way that we see. And we might, we might get those notions, those preconceived notions about him from our childhood or from our own religious practices, from our hurt and pain, from what others have told us. And they can be so strong in us, this, this religious bondage, that even when we see it in the scriptures, we twist it to say what we want it to say. We make it say what we think it says. We've got goggles on. And this can be so blinding when you can't move out of the box that you've created for yourself and for God. You start to stuff him in it. You end up missing a powerful move of God right before your face. Now, I'm not saying that when Jesus stepped in on the scene, that he was doing something different than what the Bible said he was going to do. Nor am I saying that he's going to do something in your life that contradicts the Bible. He won't. I'm saying that for the most part, a lot of the stuff in the Bible already is stuff that we have not expected. Let's just talk about some of the topics that we've gone over as a church. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How many of you tried that the Monday after I taught it? You're like, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Psalms. <laughs> you know? This is how the people in the world uh, operate. They lord their power over other people and they push them down. But this will not be that way among you, 
the greatest among you will be a servant. You just think real hard about that. Are you, a, are you a boss, an employer? Apply that to your world. That's crazy. Your kids? Don't you, do you ever, for those of you that have young kids, do you ever have those moments where you're like, you'll do what I say and you'll not argue and I'm the boss around here. You know what Jude tells me? He's like, I'm the boss. And then he runs and puts on his goggles, buck naked. How would that affect my parenting? The greatest among you will be a servant. That is crazy. Apply it to any situation in your life. Listen, just the Bible itself is hard. Jesus didn't come in to, uh, to, wet our, you know, to wet our appetites, to pat us on the back, and to affirm all that we have already been doing. Our lives are difficult because of all that we have been doing. If humanity could save themselves, he wouldn't need to come. So he comes, and his words bring both comfort and challenge. And you better believe it, that if you interact with the life and words and ministry of Jesus, there's going to be things in there that do not fit your green goggles. But they're the best things that you have ever heard in your life. Because Jesus knows you better than you know yourself, and he knows what eternal life is made of. And if we could just take off the goggles and say, God, what are you doing? You ever heard that, you know that famous verse in Jeremiah 29, 11, I think it is? God says, I know the plans that I have for you. How many of us have twisted that into our own prayer? God, I know the plans I have for you. <laughs> That's been my prayer a number of times, even though I wouldn't admit it. God, I've got this plan. I've got, you know, okay, I've got the five-year plan, and uh, you're going to do this, and then you're going to do that, and then this is going to happen, and then growth and power, and it's going to be awesome, and people will applaud me, and that'll be great, and then, and then you know, we'll do this thing, and then this will happen, and this will happen. I've got it all planned for you, God. Just try not to get in the way and mess with my agenda, and things will be great. It's the green goggles. For the Pharisees, the goggles become like categories. God, this is the box that you get to work in. This is what you get to do. Love me, bless me, answer my prayers, don't let me suffer, no challenges, that'd be great. Job raise, that'd be awesome too, throw that in there. And while I'm dreaming, how about a pony? And on and on. But don't, I, I don't want to suffer. I don't want adversary. I don't want difficulties. I don't want to have to deal with conflict. I don't want you to let me lose my job or, God forbid, like have to make ends meet. I don't want any of that stuff. And when he does it, it breaks those categories that we've put around him. I love categories, to be honest, because it gives me the semblance of control. If I can box people in, I can control them, so I think. If I can give God the plan for my life, I can feel like I am in control of my life. And look at the Pharisees. You can hear this in their voices. Verse 31 through 32, when Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? This is Jesus speaking about the Pharisees. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. If I could rephrase that, he would say, they're like spoiled kids uh, harping on other people in Paseo Nuevo, right? And what are they saying? We played the flute for you, but you did not, the flute for you, but you did not dance. I don't know how to play the flute. I think it's something like that. It's like a trombone or whatever. And we sang a dirge and you did not weep. You hear that in the, in the Pharisees? We did this, you were supposed to respond in that way. 
We did that and you're supposed to respond in that way. Is that not the human tendency? I've got a plan for you, God, and for everybody else. If everybody would just listen to me, this would be a better place. And for the Pharisees, we see it in a couple of ways. For one, uh, in verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you said he has a demon, right? So John didn't come the way that they thought he would come. God didn't move in the way that they thought he would move. They were disappointed. The way that the Pharisees probably wanted John to come was as this guy just coming in, Old Testament prophet, you know, coming in and rejoicing in the way that things are, partying, celebrating, maybe even a little pat on the back on the Pharisees for doing such a good job of being righteous. And instead, how does John come? With fire. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, you tax collectors. Repent, you Roman soldiers. Repent, you Pharisees. You are farther from the kingdom of God than you could imagine. That is not what you want to hear when you've been spending your whole life being self-righteous. You want a pat on the back? John didn't give it. But look at, look at the next example with Jesus. This is the opposite of John the Baptist. The son of man, Jesus, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Ha, I'm done with you. Do you notice that John and Jesus, even though they have the same goal, have completely different methodologies? John came in fasting, looking terrible in the wilderness, and calling people out. Jesus comes in eating meals with those very people that John called out. Yeah, he would call him out too, but he would call him out over a meal. They're both doing two different things. And the Pharisees, it doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter that they're the opposite. The John and Jesus could have come in on a unicorn stallion and it wouldn't have mattered to the Pharisees. Why? Bling goggles. For some of you, perhaps this could also be the same. God wants to move so powerfully in your life. You cannot comprehend or imagine the things that God has planned for you for all of eternity. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. You cannot imagine, comprehend God's thoughts towards you. Ephesians tells us that we are Christ's workmanship. Literally his masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus so that you could walk in the good works that he has set up for you. We come to God with an agenda. God has a better agenda for us. But we often miss out on that agenda because green goggles. I had my life planned out this way. God wants to move so powerfully in your life. The problem is it doesn't look green. It doesn't match what I was expecting. It's uncomfortable. It's challenging. I don't like it. It involves conflict. It involves struggle. This isn't what I signed up for. I thought Christianity was going to be easy. And some of you perhaps right now are about to reject God's purpose in your life. You're about to walk away because it came in a form you are unwilling to see. And Jesus is right now working in you, longing to peel the film off your eyes. 
Sometimes God has to do what we weren't expecting, what is truly disappointing to us, so that we will be able to take off the goggles we are continually wearing. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 4. It says that the God, uh, verse 4 and verse 6, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see, they cannot see. But in verse 6, we see how the gospel works. He says, like a light shines into a dark place, God causes a light to shine into our hearts, revealing the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. Basically, he's saying, our problem is that we're blind, and the way that God saves is by unblinding our eyes, and that process doesn't stop. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, we are being transformed by beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. It's like our Christian life is like this. We start like this, and it's just this. Over and over and over and over, decade after decade after decade, until what the Apostle John says, we see him as he is, and we become like him. That's the journey. What Jesus wants, you might have a laundry list of things you want Jesus to do in your life. The thing that's at the top of Jesus' list to do in your life is to take off those goggles because he wants to do something fresh in the midst of what you're going through. It might not be what you expected, it might not even be what you wanted. But if it's Jesus, it's good. Our relationship with God, have you noticed, always seems to affect our relationships with people. That's why the Ten Commandments are designed the way that they are. The first half of the Ten Commandments are our relationship to God. Thou shalt not have any other gods before you. Don't make any graven images. Don't take his name in vain. That's how we relate to God, a right relationship with God. The second half has to do with how we relate to people. Don't kill, don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't covet. In other words, you see this all throughout the scriptures. The way we are able to relate to one another always flows out of how we relate to God. If you have a distorted view of God, you will have a distorted view of people. And so it happens when the person puts up categories around God. Well, he's supposed to do this, and he's supposed to be there for me. We basically treat him like a servant or a genie. We'll do that with people too. This is when we start to hoist up categories and walls around other people. People that we don't understand, well, this is why they're doing that. It's because they're this, 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 and this. Well, that person over there, they meant to harm me because that, 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 and that. One flows out of the other. And right now we're seeing both of those things colliding in the Pharisees. They have a, they have a broken, self-righteous, distorted view of God that is causing them to push people like the tax collectors down. Jesus comes in on the scene and he changes everything. And he had a way of breaking down categories and taking off the goggles that I still just get a kick out of every time I read it. He ate meals. The son of man came eating and drinking. Do you know the Gospel of Luke has often been called, uh, sometimes called by scholars, the Gospel of Food? That when you're reading through the Gospel, every instance of Jesus 
is either him on the way to a meal, coming from a meal, or in the middle of a meal. One of the most powerful institutions in the church, the Lord's Supper, is him using food as an illustration of the kingdom of God. He describes the kingdom as a wedding banquet. His analogies have to do with food. He literally eats food. It's almost as if Jesus isn't eating food to quench his appetite, but to teach people about the kingdom of God. What was it about meals that did this? You remember his vision, what he came for, what we saw in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to set people free. That's his vision. What's his mission? What's the way that he came to accomplish his vision? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. But you called him a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus brings the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, close to people who could not reach it by breaking bread with them. (laughs) Think about a tax collector who's been hated by his countrymen, by Rome, who's got nothing left to comfort his soul but his money, and even that is starting to develop worms. And a rabbi of all the people in the world who would hate a tax collector instead says, Zacchaeus, get down out of that tree. I'm coming to your house. We're going to eat a meal together. So you have to dive into the first century world for a second to understand the power of a shared meal. In the first century, especially among uh, those Hebrews, a meal was the most intimate act of intimacy short of marriage that you could share with anybody. You literally, you had no chairs in, in those days. You had a table that was low to the ground, pillows all around the table, and you would recline. That's why we hear words about Jesus reclining at the table. And you would be reclining against the knees of another person, forming a circle around the table of deep, intimate fellowship. Imagine then inviting an enemy to a meal. This is not just a business decision here. This was, this was a tremendous act of self, uh, selfless love. When Jesus told people to eat with him, with others, when he described himself as someone coming uh, uh, that eats and drinks, when he was always doing his ministry around food, it wasn't because he was a hungry guy. It was because he was using the thing that all human beings understand and know. Friendship at the table. If you were in that place and somebody invited you into their home and washed your feet and served you a meal, it didn't matter if you had just been trying to kill them the week before. That meal meant you were their friend. When Jesus eat meals, he, eat meal, he eats meals with friends. Usually when I, I teach through the scriptures, there's about a, like 2,000 years of cultural gap in there. And so I, most of my work is, well, what this person said or did meant this back then, and here's how that translates to our day and age. Funny thing about meals, I don't need to do that. Everybody in this room knows about a meal. I want you to imagine, if, you, if you're skeptical, Imagine that one person in your life that you would never talk to. What would happen if you sat with them at a table 
and shared a meal. God, I'd never do that. Of course you wouldn't. It requires vulnerability. It requires openness. Things that we tend to keep tight when we're dealing with the other to protect ourselves, to control the situation. What would it be like if instead of arguing your viewpoint on Facebook, which always seems to work beautifully, by the way, you instead invited that person to your home, cooked some corn dogs, or went to a Dodgers game, had the nachos with the orange stuff on it, and you're like, hey, dude, you're weird, and I can't believe you believe that, but I want to understand. Let's have a meal. The lengths that you would be able to go with that person would far exceed a text message, an email, or God forbid, social media. There's something about a meal that breaks down walls, and I think it's the same that it was in the first century. To share a common need, such as food with another person, dignifies them, elevates them, and tells them, you are on my level. And that is incredibly powerful. Is that the deepest level of some of those things, the goggles that I wear, the categories that I construct, the control that I want, the manipulation that I step into, if I were honest with myself, and I'm only honest with myself 10% of the time, most of my control issues and manipulation and power grabs come from a deep well of insecurity. I don't know what it is for you, but that's what it is for me. A deep well of insecurity. I am insecure about certain things, so I step out to control the situation. And part of that control might be telling God to do what I want him to do. Fix this problem. Or it might be uh, projecting onto you a label or an image, all sorts of things. And Jesus destroys those categories with a simple meal. I'm going to stop right here. And I want to stop by inviting you into the meal of Jesus. That if this is so important to our king, I think about that. Jesus came, God sent, his, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God sent his only begotten son and his son came eating and drinking Perhaps we need to change the way we've been viewing food. (laughs) Some of you are out there, you might not know how to step into the kingdom of God, how to interact with its rhythms from Monday through Saturday. I want to give you two things right now. You ready? Two meals that Jesus invites you into. One has to do with your relationship with God, and that's the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is not magical. It doesn't have magical properties that save you. It's what we would call sacramental, a vessel for what God is doing. It represents and symbolizes the grace that we so need, a means of grace, if you would. So much so that when I take of the bread and I take of the cup, I'm doing what Jesus told me to do. He said, this is my body. It's sacramental. It's not his literal body, but it stands for his body. When I take of it, I'm remembering that his body was broken for my sins, for my manipulations, for my pride. 
for my ugly attitude, for the ways that I slip up and fail as a father and as a son and as a husband, fail as a Christian, fail as a pastor, fail as a human being, this and not me. Every time I take of this bread, I'm reminding myself, I'm not in control. And that's actually perhaps one of the best things I've ever become aware of in my life. Because that will allow Jesus, who is in control, to step into my life. When I take of the juice, when I take of the drink, I'm reminded of his blood that washes away all of my sins. And Jesus said, every time you take of this cup and you take of this bread, this body, which is my body, you are, in a sense, participating in his death and resurrection. You're stepping into his story. Think about that. You're saying what the Pharisees should have said. I had my own story, but I'm leaving my story and my agenda, and I'm stepping Stepping into the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus, it's not about what I want to do. What do you want to do? And I shudder to think what would happen if hundreds of people at Reality Santa Barbara took that kind of a risk. Jesus, what do you want to do with my life? If you're a believer, this is for you. If you're not a believer, if you, if you don't even know if you're a Christian or not, maybe you're curious but you're not sure, you can make that decision today. Examine the life of Jesus, allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you, and just say, if that's where your heart is at, Jesus, I don't have it all together, I don't even know all the right answers, but I know one thing, you are real, you are Lord and you are King, and I want to follow you, change my heart forever, and bring me with you. And then, take of the bread, and take of the cup, and remind your faith that it's not attached to you, it's attached to Christ. And allow your faith to be recalibrated towards your Lord. Then there's a second meal. Remember, everything that starts with God ends up bleeding into other people. So here's a meal with Jesus. Here's a second meal. I want to challenge you and invite you to start thinking about food differently. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Everything that he did revolved around food because he knew what it was capable of doing. Food for him was... was a glimpse of the kingdom. What do you think we're going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be around the dinner table with God. I want you to think of food no longer as the thing that fills you up, although it does do that. I want you to think of it intentionally and strategically as a way that you can bridge gaps. Who in your life have you not spoken to in a while? Who in your life do you have a disagreement with? Who in your life is there a conflict with? Who in your life is awkward? And you like wouldn't be, you just don't want to talk to them because it would be weird. Bring them to the table. Break bread, eat a corn dog, eat a steak. I don't care what it is. Bring them to the table where the walls drip down and you are able to see that person as Jesus sees them. And do that meal sacramentally too. What I mean by that is this is no longer just a functioning practice. i got to eat to be full. But Jesus Christ is present in this meal. And if we are more aware on a minute-by-minute, second-by-second basis of the active presence of God in all the things that we're doing, it might change all the things that we're doing for his glory and for our joy.